0: Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, we read. Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him. The first of all the commandments is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other great other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him. Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth for there is one God and there is no other but he and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul. And with all the strength and the loved one's neighbor as oneself is more than all of the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. In Mark chapter 12, you'll remember that the chapter began with an illustration, a parable Of a vineyard to examine and expose Christ's rejection by the nation in verses 1 through 12. The illustration was followed by a confrontation. The Jewish leaders confront Jesus concerning three issues. Number one, the paying of taxes or tribute to Rome in verses 13 through 17 concerning marriage and the resurrection in verses 18 through 27. And now this issue of what constitutes the greatest commandment in verses 28 through 34. The political and religious parties of the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they've all had their chance to grill The rabbi from the Galilee. Now a scribe, read lawyer, comes forth with a question concerning the greatest commandment. By the way, the religious leaders had long debated which of the 613 commandments listed in the law is the most important. Of the 613 commandments, 365 are negative. Two hundred and forty eight are positive. Three hundred and sixty five thou shalt shalt not two hundred and forty eight thou shalt. The answer that Jesus provides comes from the Hebrew Shema or the traditional Jewish statement that was found in Deuteronomy six four. Shema was a word that meant hear or listen or have an ear. And so it was recited every morning and every evening by every observant, pious Jew. Then he adds Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. If we love God, we will demonstrate that love by expressing love to our neighbor. It would also appear that the scribe making the inquiry boldly agrees with Jesus. But it would also appear that the vast majority of the people listening, the religious leaders who have gathered to grill Jesus, simply don't get it. They have a shallow view or a superficial view of the real meaning of the Jewish law. They fail to understand the concept of obedience from the heart. And so the final confrontation, by the way, in the chapter will come from a question that Jesus himself will ask concerning his own identity as the son of David later in verses thirty five through thirty seven. But let's begin with the important request. Look again at verse twenty eight. It says, then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him. Which is the first commandment of all? Like I intimated earlier, the scribes functioned very much like lawyers in that society. It was the scribes job to study the law, to teach the law, to inscribe or record precedent. This is why the New Testament says that they were experts in the law. Mark tells us, and having heard them reasoning together... That is the earlier conversation. You'll remember the Sadducees and the Herodians and the Pharisees had conversations with Jesus about paying tribute and the resurrection. And it would appear that one of the scribes in particular overheard these conversations and was impressed with the ability of Jesus to argue. By the way, that's one of the things that you learn in law school to argue One of my college professors in relating the law says, look, in teaching the law. One of three things will happen when the law is in your favor, argue the law, when the facts are in your favor, argue the facts, if neither the law nor the facts are in your favor, argue. That's exactly what we see happening here. Who was this man? Did he take it upon himself to question Jesus? Was he sent by the religious leaders? By the way, when we compare Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 22, 34 and 35, the companion passage to this particular passage we read, but when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together, then one of them, which was a lawyer... Asked him a question, tempting him. In Matthew's Gospel, the word translated tempting, parazon, is a word which, according to Thayer, the Greek scholar, means to try or to attempt. To endeavor for the purpose of ascertaining what a person thinks or how a person will behave under any given circumstance. And therefore the passage could mean a lawyer asked him a question, testing him to ascertain what he thought concerning the subject under discussion. So remember, the scribe's job was to interpret and apply the rules And the regulations and I'm going to suggest to you that the question appears to be honest and basic and judging by his response and Jesus's response. We have every reason to believe that it is a sincere statement. The scribe is asking for a concise statement of the chief aim of what the philosophers call the sumum bonum or the highest good. In other words, he's asking the question that many of us ask. What's the most important thing that I can do with my life? Why am I here? What am I here for? How would, how am I supposed to think about my life and how I'm supposed to live my life? And so you can imagine when you're a lawyer and often lawyers live in a world of creating laws and expanding laws. And so these 613 laws would sometimes expand to Thousands and tens of thousands of more questions. And so you can imagine, law has a way of growing or shrinking. David in Psalm 15 reduced the law to 11 precepts in in Psalm 15 number 1 walk blamelessly number 2 do what is right number 3 speak the truth from the heart number 4 do not slander with your tongue number 5 do no evil to a friend number 6 don't take up a reproach against your neighbor Number seven, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. Number eight, a person who honors and fears the Lord. Number nine, a person who swears to his own heart and refuses to change. Um, Number 10, who does not put money out at interest. Number 11, who doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. And so the challenge was to squeeze squeeze make make them less and less Isaiah chapter 33 verse 15 reduce the 11 to 6 Number one, a person who walks righteously. Number two, a person who speaks uprightly. Number three, a person who despises the gain of oppressions. Number four, the person who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe. Number five, who stops his ear from hearing bloodshed. Number six, who shuts his eyes from looking at evil. So they're trying to compress the law into achievable standards. Micah reduced the 6 to 3. Micah 6a, he showed you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk in humility with your God. And so once again, Isaiah brings the 3 to 2. In Isaiah 56, 1, keep justice. Number 2, do righteous. Finally, Habakkuk even compresses these two into one. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, he writes, The righteous shall live by faith. Imagine if the modern lawmaker's tendency is to expand the law into thousands and thousands of rules and regulations. Rabbinic ingenuity would sometimes try to make them less and less and less. But can you imagine having a relationship like that that's based on rules and regulations? Imagine a man falls in love with a woman and he says, you know, I love you more than the sun and the moon and the stars. Um, but I just need to know what are the rules? What do you mean? Well, how many times a day do I have to call you? How many times do I have to say I love you? Um, what? Tell me about the rules of like providing. Tell me about the rules surrounding this and surrounding that. It's going to get wearisome after a while. But make no mistake about it, gentlemen, there are rules. <laughs> Even if they're spoken or unspoken. I was reading about a lawyer who was conducting an interview with a medical examiner who happened to be a doctor in a, in a case. And the attorney grills the witness and says, doctor, before you would pre- perform the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? witness?" No. Attorney, did you check for blood pressure? Doctor, no. Attorney, did you check for breathing? Doctor, no. Attorney, so then is it possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? Witness, no. How can you be so sure, doctor? Witness, because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar? Attorney, But could the patient have still been alive nevertheless, doctor? Well, I guess it's possible he could have been practicing law somewhere in this courtroom. (laughs) That's what you're trying to do, aren't you? Trying to come up with the right answer at the right time. Look at Jesus's inspired response in verse 29. Jesus answered him The first of all the commandments is Hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one Like I said every observant Jew every morning every evening would begin the day and end the day with this prayer it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 Shema Israel Adonai Elohenu Adonai, Ehad. The full Shema was contained in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and then verse 11, and then verses 13 through 21, and then Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 34, or through 41. Now, these three passages of the Shema were those passages of scriptures that were known as Phylacteries. you may not know what that word means, but have you ever seen um, the little leather box that sometimes you'll see on an observant Jews forehead or wrapped around their wrists? They're called phylacteries. It's mentioned in Matthew, chapter 23, verse five. These are the boxes which devout Jews wore on their forehead, their wrist at prayer. And the warrant for wearing the box is found in Deuteronomy, chapter six, verse eight where you would keep the law close to your mind and close to your hands, that it would be an ever-present sense that you would understand it. By the way, the Shema was also contained in those little cylindrical boxes that the Jewish people called the Masusa. Sometimes when you go to a Jewish person's house, there's a little cylindrical box. Inside of that box is that prayer, the Shema. As a matter of fact, in many Jewish homes, every room in the house Contains a mezuzah with this prayer. The idea being for the observant Jew. When he goes into his home or he goes into the room. He is constantly reminded of the presence of God. The living presence of the one and only singular God. And there is a God. Atheism and polytheism are false Beliefs. There is a God... And so for the atheist, the agnostic and the unbeliever who questions, ridicules or determines that there is no God, Jesus reminds the listeners that there is a relationship between the creator and the creature, that God is the object of worship and we are the worshipers. The New Testament or the Old Testament said we are the people of the sheep of his pasture, the sheep of his flock. And therefore, love and adoration and worship becomes the right response for every one and the Lord is echad. It's a Hebrew word which was singular in its understanding. But uh, if, if you were a Jew and you were speaking of a cluster of grapes, you could have massive clusters. But it still was singular fruit. The idea being that God is singular in His identity, singular in His essence. Indivisible, if you will. He is the focus and consideration and concentration of our lives. He is the one and the only subject of our devotion. And so every devout Jew, Sadducee, Pharisee, scribe, everyone would have went, Amen, Amen. Sadducee, Amen. Pharisee, Amen. We can't take exception with what Jesus is saying. We're without excuse. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. There is none other God but one in 1 Corinthians 8 four, Ephesians 4, 6. Paul wrote, for there is one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So he's the God of the north and the south. And the east and the west. In verse 30, it says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. What Jesus does is he gives the summation of human obligation towards God. If you think about the obligation that you have, the requirements that God necessitates, love him with your entire heart, love him with your soul, with your mind, with your strength. And so the Lord has to have the supreme place. And even in the distinction between heart, soul and mind and strength, it has not so much a sense of separation and compartmentalization, at least in the beginning. In the beginning, there seems to be an affirmation that whatever it means to love God, you love him with the entirety of your existence. And so Jesus also affirms that we have a heart and a soul and a mind. Jesus also affirms not only the brilliant beauty of the book of Deuteronomy, but its authority. In our lives, the Lord is to have the supreme place of affection, the supreme place of attention. No other love can be allowed to rival that love for God. And again, that doesn't mean that you can't love your husband or that you can't love your wife or that you can't love your children or that you can't love your country. It just means that love for God is so supreme that love for spouse and love for children and love for country seems to fade into a kind of non-existence. So Jesus affirms that we have a heart, we have a soul, we have a mind, we have strength. And so no wonder the reformers, when they wrote the Westminster Confession and other confessionals, they would say that love is man's chief duty towards God. And you'll note that there's no mention of religion. It isn't an embracing of Judaism or even Protestant Christianity. There's no mention of religion. And so whatever else love means, it must include the concepts of commitment and loyalty. And so, again, we even begin to understand the meaning of love. Remember, love isn't just some sort of warm, fuzzy feeling that wells up in the pit of your stomach. Like, you know, I love Chick-fil-A. Or I love green chili. You know, when I... Eat that green chili, the endorphins are released into my brain, and there's just this instant sense of well being and happiness. So, here, love isn't just. An affection that wells up in the pit of your stomach that causes your palms to sweat. Here, love seems to indicate a willingness to do what's right under every circumstance. And that's where, the, when we begin to ask and answer the question, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by that? On the short list of love has to include love and loyalty. Why? I think it's significant that the first commandment deals with loyalty and commitment. You shall have no other gods. That's a pretty clear statement of exclusivity, commitment, loyalty. If I were to add a few other statements to the short list of loyalty and commitment, I think I would have to include the words trust and respect. Let's be honest. How can you love someone that you don't trust and you don't respect? Imagine you said to a person, I love you, but I don't respect you as far as I can throw you. Does that sound like love? We love God. And so that must mean that we trust him and respect him. Because he's the creator of the universe. He's the sustainer of all life. He is the savior. He is the redeemer. He is the author and the ownership of life. And so if the concept of love includes commitment and loyalty, if it also includes trust and respect, then a loving relationship also includes giving and surrender. In other words, in the kind of love we're describing, it's the desire to give. It's the overwhelming desire. Desire to give, not the overwhelming desire to get. And so a loving relationship includes loyalty and commitment and trust and respect and giving and surrender and knowing and sharing. The life that matters. The life that counts. Is first concerned with God. And then with others. And look what Jesus says in verse 31. And the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, other rabbis had talked about loving God and other rabbis had talked about loving others. But only Under a few exceptional circumstances in the past had any rabbi combined these two concepts into a singular idea. The precept that he quotes in verse 31 is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. In this context, thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And I am the Lord. The Jew reading it. My neighbor's not black, and my neighbor's not Hispanic. My neighbor's not a Gentile. We are to love the Lord and we are to love our neighbors. I thank God that my neighbor isn't these Gentile people, the disgusting Gentiles. Now, I need you to understand something. Jesus is saying we are to love the Lord more than ourselves. We're to love our neighbor at least as much as we love ourselves. The commandment wasn't to boost self-esteem or generate a cottage industry of self-lovers with self-views. The Bible assumes that people love themselves. The Bible doesn't assume that people don't love themselves. The Bible assumes that the biggest problem that we face isn't that we don't love ourselves enough. It is that we love ourselves too much. And so... Jesus says that God is important, that people are important. But what about the neighbor thing? What about the neighbor thing? Contact with aliens and Gentiles wasn't permitted. A Jew couldn't bear a grudge against another Jew. But you know what that sometimes did? It sometimes gave them a sense of permission that it was okay to hate a Gentile. Look, you can't hate other Jews, but... Hey on an on a need to basis we can hate gentiles and you know what happened that's exactly what happened the isolation and separation became a type of disgust for the gentiles And you'll remember in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus was going over a similar situation, someone asked the question, well, who is my neighbor? And of course, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37, it tells the story of the good Samaritan and the final line. You know, the story, how the person is waylaid by thieves and they're tossed aside and religious people walk on one side and then the other side. And then the dreaded, hated Samaritan comes along and shows him mercy. And Jesus answers the question about who is our neighbor by saying that he who shows mercy or the person who is in. Need of mercy and demonstrates a mercy, and so therefore, our neighbor is everyone in the world. No matter what his or her status is, no matter what their condition or circumstance is, every human being is to be valued. Every human being is to be esteemed. We're not to injure or wrong our neighbor. The Bible says in Philippians two, three, we're to esteem others better than ourselves. And Jesus unites the two precepts into a singular statement. And he then begins to describe that true religion isn't just simply having right thoughts and right feelings and right affections for the one Through God. It is having right thoughts and right feelings and right affections for everyone around us. And of course, it becomes impossible to obey the command if you don't even know who your neighbor is. You see, you may know who the person across the street is. You may may know the person who lives to the left of you. And you may know the person who lives to the right of you. You may know them even better than you know the person sitting right next to you in church right at this very moment. There's a person sitting in front of you or behind you or to the left of you or to the right of you. And you wonder who they are. And you wonder whether or not. Whatever this means, means that you have to love them that way. And you see, here is the point that Jesus is making that right thoughts and feelings and affections for God really become a meaningless exercise in empty theology. If you don't have right thoughts and feelings and affections for other people. And now all of a sudden religion is taken out of the realm of ritual. And observance. The Apostle John, in his little epistle, would later write, "But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us love not just simply in word or in tongue but in deed and in truth, and if a loving relationship includes commitment and loyalty and if it means trust and respect and if it means giving and self surrender if it means knowing and sharing then the The command of Jesus is a meaningless and useless command unless if it's only restricted to a feeling that you have inside of your heart and it's never manifest in a very real way in which you live your life. And so how can you even fulfill the commandment if you don't even take the time to know who your neighbor is? And then now all of a sudden we begin to understand something about the text that we may have not connected the dots. We begin to understand something that the observant Jew and the religious Jew, the person who's a Jewish person right now, has way more in common when it comes to the revelation of God than you might have ever, ever imagined. And God demands love for himself and commands love for others. And now all of a sudden there's this awkwardness. Because you grew up in a world where you thought you can't demand love and you can't command love. But God. Demands love and commands love. Did it ever occur to you that God. Looks for love. And that religious activity was never, ever, ever, never, ever, ever meant to be a satisfactory substitute for loving him and loving each other. And so when we think I've read my Bible and I've gone to church, but I still am disgusted with that person. Then the Bible makes it abundantly clear that there's something, something terribly wrong. John, chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus said a new commandment, not suggestion, a new commandment. I give you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, he didn't say that by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. If you go to Calvary Chapel right on. You go to Calvary. How cool is that? But the place of church was never a substitute for what the Bible indicates. In first John, chapter four, verse 20, John writes, if a man says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar for he that loves not his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God loves his brother also. And so the Bible teaches that love is a debt that we owe to everyone and a payment that we're always making. So is love a debt? Yes. Is love a duty? Yes. Is love a command? Yes. And it's an impossibility. If it means a warm, fuzzy feeling that wells up in the pit of your stomach, or feelings of fondness or affection, it has to mean something more, something greater, something that we're capable of doing. And now all of a sudden when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, and we discover that love is patient and kind, and and we, we discover that love in its very essence is a willingness to do what's right towards a particular person at any circumstance, then it becomes bearable. We have the ability to do it. And there's this instant recognition that takes place. Look at verse 32. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth for there is one God and there is no other but he and to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. Why do you suppose the scribe brought up the burnt offerings and the sacrifices? Why is he thinking about that? The scribe connects the dots. He sees that when a man really loves the Lord, he can't help but share that love and that love and obedience generate more currency than burnt offering and sacrifice. The law of love exceeds the law of offering and sacrifice. But you've got to remember this man is living in a world and he is embracing a religion that in his way of thinking at the heart and the soul of his religion are burnt offering and grain offering and peace offering and sin offering and trespass offering. It is the Passover and they are there in order to initiate the offering right at that very moment. And the scribe has been on a very long journey. The reason why there's offering is he knows what every self-respecting lawyer really does know. That when you know the law and defend the law and champion the law. That the law becomes the thing that accuses you rather than excuses you. And that the revelation of the law does what it's supposed to do. It reveals that you're a lawbreaker. I keep the commandments. Really? Let's start with the first one. Do you love the Lord with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength? You've never held back, not even for a moment. You've never let go. You've never conceded. You took every ounce of every opportunity that is inside of you and you've loved him singularly and exclusively. And the right answer is. No. I failed. What's the solution? Burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings trespass offerings remember he's living in a world that he's beginning to understand that life and religion can't simply be ceremony and rule and regulation and prohibition and allowance and restriction that life is love and loving God with everything you are and loving your neighbor the law of love is great it's so profound that it almost guarantees salvation to those who know it and embrace it and it's going to take a radical honesty and a radical willingness to ask and answer the question concerning our human condition no wonder the new testament writers speak of love as the evidence of faith in Jesus, we love him because he first loved us. it says in first John four nineteen love is the proof of life in Christ. We know that we pass from death into life because we go to church, because we read our Bible, because we do good things to the poor. No, it's because we love the brethren, it says in first John chapter three, verse fourteen. Love is the stamp, it is the certification of genuine faith. Paul writes in first Corinthians thirteen two, even if I have all faith and have not love, I am nothing. Evidence, proof, authenticity, motive. Paul writes in second Corinthians five fourteen, the love of Jesus compels me. John 14, 15, love is careful to obey. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Galatians five twenty two love is the fruit of the Spirit and the proof of the presence of the Spirit in the life of the believer. And look at Jesus' interesting remark in verse 34. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. It would appear to me that in the New Testament, there's three kinds of people in relationship to the kingdom of God. Those who are very, very far from the kingdom of God. Those who are not very far from the kingdom. And those that are in the kingdom. Wouldn't it be nice to know just how this lawyer slash scribe made out? Wouldn't you like to know? Did he eventually become a disciple? It's Tuesday. Wednesday's one day away. Thursday will be, for all intents and purposes, the final day of Jesus's ministry. On Friday night, Thursday night, Friday morning, he will be taken and he will be tried and he will be executed. Do you think that this inquisitive lawyer followed? The Galilean, did he follow him? Did he see him in court? Did he see the charges against him? Did he see them torture him? Did they, did he see them put him to death? Did he watch as they crucified him? Did he follow Joseph of Arimathea and watch him place him in the tomb? Did he wake up on Sunday morning and did he visit an empty tomb? happened to him? Did he hear about the resurrection? Did he remember what Jesus said earlier when he said that the kingdom of God is within you? Did he remember the words, you're not very far? Let me ask you a question. When Jesus says... You are not far from the kingdom of God. What do you think he means? Do you think it means that as a true citizen of God's kingdom, that you don't try to deceive God, you don't try to put one over on him, you don't try to substitute ritual and external religion, true citizens of God's kingdom know that God looks on the heart. True citizens of God's kingdom knows that he looks into the heart and then he looks at the behavior of people. And since God looks into the heart, what does he see? In your heart. A heart cleansed and forgiven. A heart in need of cleansing and forgiveness. If you're willing to acknowledge what God already sees, then you're not far from the kingdom. You see, if you're a person who needs cleansing from sin and, or the power to live your life in such a way that you can honor and please Him, then you're not that far away. And the religious leaders realize the futility of trying to trap Jesus by leading questions. And so what motivates you? What compels you? Is it your love for Jesus? Is it it his love for you? It's easy, it's easy, it's easy to let ritual replace love. But Jesus makes it clear that religion, tradition, and ritual will never serve as a satisfying substitute for cleansing, for forgiveness. For relationship. Jesus is making it clear that loving God is loving people. You know, I believe that George Washington Carver rates as perhaps the most gifted scientist who's ever graced the North American shores. And the reason why I believe that isn't simply because of the stupendous contributions that he made to science, but it was because of the journey that he took. It doesn't shock me or surprise me that with a Harvard education or Harvard medical school, you can do some pretty remarkable things. But he grew up a slave. He wrote. Anything will give up its secrets. If you love it enough. Not only have I found that when I talk to the little flower or to the little peanut, they will give up their secrets. But I found that when I silently commune with people They give up their secrets also if you love them enough. You see, the truth is your neighbors will never give up their secrets. Your friends and your family, the person sitting to your left and to your right and in front of you and in back of you won't give up their secrets unless you love them. You know how the Bible teaches that we learn to love? By loving. And you know what else the Bible teaches? You become exactly like the thing that you love the most. Henry Drummond wrote, You will find, as you look back on your life, that the moments when you really lived are the moments when you have done things in the spirit of love. The last great Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards said, but it is doubtless true and evident from these scriptures that the essence of all true religion lies in holy love and that in this divine affection and an habitual disposition to it and that light, which is the foundation of it and those things which are the fruit of it consist the whole of religion. So, Jesus is right. This is religion. Do you love Him with everything that you are and with everything that you will be? And does it manifest itself in the very real way that you treat the people who are closest to you? It's Tuesday. And there's one question left and Jesus is going to answer it. That's what we're going to look at the next time you and I meet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, if loving means loyalty and commitment, if it means respecting and trusting, if it means having a sense of affection lord we pray that you would begin to teach us what it means to love you and to love each other lord we know that this is not an easy task it's so much easier to replace religion and ritual religion is easy relationship is hard And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you will open up our eyes and our heart. Lord, we pray that we would come to the realization that perhaps this attorney comes to. That a knowledge of the law brings with it the embarrassing reality that we've broken the law. And that we need a Savior who will wash us and cleanse us and forgive us. And reunite us with the God who made us. In Jesus' name, amen.